The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan, and this week we're diving deeper into the murder of Maggie Lacascio with an audio edition of our original series, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. In 2001, Maggie was found beaten and stabbed in her Coral Gables home. Those closest to Maggie quickly pointed their fingers to her estranged husband, Ed, but his airtight alibi led authorities to a much more shocking answer. This episode is entitled, Brother's Keeper. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast. I would compare this to something you would see in a movie because the blood was everywhere. Maggie was loving and caring, but very quiet. Ed was worth a lot of money. I've never seen anything that violent. The whole scene screams rage. The danger of someone thinking they're the smartest person in the room is that they frequently underestimate the people around them. He said to me, if I ever wanted to have the killed, no one would ever find out. The husband, Ed, was not his DNA that they found. The last thing we wanted was to have him found not guilty if he was guilty. On the night before Halloween 2001, police responded to an alarm at a posh home in Coral Gables, Florida. Inside, Sylvia Lacasio, known as Maggie to her family and friends, was found brutally murdered in one of the bloodiest scenes imaginable. Who would want to kill this devoted wife and mother? An investigation would reveal the dark side of affluence, proving that for this family, blood may be thicker than water, but money rules. Maggie and Ed Lacasio were a very well-to-do, wealthy couple that lived in a really nice home in the wealthy enclave of Coral Gables in Miami-Dade County. For Miami, Coral Gables is sort of like the Beverly Hills of Miami, right? It's a place where, you know, developers and lawyers and doctors have huge mansions. There's gated communities. It really is sort of like when you say you live in Coral Gables, it's like, you know, wow, how fancy. Ed was worth a lot of money and he was a successful accountant. Um, he, you know, had made really wise investments. So this was someone that was very well healed. Maggie was a girl who was loving and caring and smart, but very quiet. She had been a refugee from Cuba. She had lost her father when she was very young. She came to this country and she trained to be an accountant. She got married, put her career on the back burner and raised her son, Eddie Jr. Maggie and Ed lived a life of affluence. They were respected members of the community. But like many people, marriages don't last forever. She suddenly learned that her husband had been cheating on her, and she had the courage and confidence to say, I deserve a better life. 
So she went ahead and filed for divorce and thus was launched this sort of bitter, acrimonious relationship. Ed moved from, you know, wealthy enclave to the most bachelor place ever, which was on South Beach. South Beach is where young people go to sort of, you know, have fun and party and live, live the South Beach lifestyle. He did not go willingly. It was something that was sort of thrust upon him because of his infidelities. I was working an afternoon shift, which lasted to 11 p.m. That night, the dispatcher put out a call of a house alarm. Coral Gables is a pretty affluent area. Uh, we get very little violent crime. We average about one homicide a year. 99.9% .9 of the alarms you respond to will never be anything. They're just false alarms. But we do have our violent crime every once in a while. We went through the gate, walked up to the front door, didn't see anything unusual. There's no damage to the door. Uh, as we're about to get to the garage, we notice that there's a little door to the house, slightly open. Uh, I could see inside the house. It was a little dark in there, but I, I, it struck me the way that the, I thought it was a decorative paint on the interior, and there were spots everywhere. At that point, I didn't realize it was blood, and I began to push further, but began to feel resistance on the back of the door. And at that point, I saw a foot uh, behind the door, um, toes up, a barefoot. I was able to get my upper body into the, the room, and that's when I saw Miss Lacasio behind the door. She was um, laying on her back. Uh, her legs were up against the back of the door. She'd been violently attacked. She had uh, a number of visual wounds. I took one look at her. I, I thought this, that she was dead. I advised that I needed backup officers. We stepped back into the room to check on Ms. Lacasio to see if she had a pulse, and she did not, and we backed out again. Although it's a wealthy community, Coral Gables, they depended on Miami-Dade to do their death cases. When we first were assigned the homicide case, I was assigned as a lead detective. The Coral Gables Police Department already went into the scene and they saw, you know, the, the homicide uh, situation there. And we also did a, uh, a walkthrough. There were bloody footprints, there were bloody fingerprints on the light switches. There was, uh, the, the whole place was in disarray. Found on the scene was a latex glove. Uh, There's an asp, which is a, it's a metal rod that uh, extends by snapping it forward. It's solid metal. It was actually bent in half and, and lying there on the scene with her blood on it. I'd never seen anything that violent. I would compare this to something you would see in a movie because the blood was everywhere. It was a very violent scene. There was a lot of blood, blood spatter, bloody footprints. I noticed on the bottom of her feet, there was blood. So most likely it was, she's walking around in her own blood. 
She had been beaten on the head with some hard object consistent with that metal baton. There were six stab wounds on her chest, neck, and the abdomen. She's even got some incised wounds in her hands. What she's doing, she's defending herself, but she's so desperate that whoever's attacking her, she's actually gonna grab the knife, blade, and it goes back and forth in between her fingers. The whole place was in disarray. I was still on a scene. I was on a scene uh, processing it with our crime scene investigators for over 25 hours. On her shirt, actually, you can visualize three bloody sneaker footprints. So I know that she had been stomped on at least three times. The whole scene screams rage. My gut feeling in a case like this is somebody knows this lady. Somebody's really pissed off. It was a little puzzling to us that the sun showed up uh, within a couple, I'd say, minutes uh, of us being there. He came home from college and he saw all the police cars that were there. And um, what, what Eddie Jr. Uh, said to the detectives that my father did this. You know, that was his feeling, that his father did it. With all the trauma that she had, I wanted to look for patterns. For example, what could the police be looking for on the outside if they ever find something? A day or two later, a neighbor called and said there was a bag in my backyard, and I thought I should notify the police. Maggie Lacasio, a mother and housewife, was brutally murdered while home alone on a quiet block in Coral Gables, Florida. It was a crime so abortly violent that to investigators, it looks like a crime of passion. The victim's son, Eddie Jr., immediately points the finger at his father, Ed, who'd been in the middle of a bitter divorce with Maggie. First of all, when you have a homicide case, the person closest to the victim is somebody you always want to keep your eyes on. They may not have done it, but you, you want to make sure they didn't do it. Eddie Jr. was not somebody who appeared to uh, had the capabilities of even doing this. Even with, with that thought, we still had to follow up his alibi where he was and what he was doing. Behind closed doors, this was a very, very dysfunctional family. There was this tension that had been built up for, for decades. And one of the things that was most striking was that uh, Eddie Jr. didn't call his dad, dad. He just called him Ed. Edward was uh, tough on him because he didn't fit the profile of the son he wanted. His son was, uh, you know, uh, intellectual. He wasn't outgoing. He didn't play sports. And that seemed to uh, cause a big rift between him and his son. And he actually treated Eddie Jr. pretty badly. Ed Sr. clearly did not cherish the privilege and responsibility of being a father. He didn't just delegate the privilege to his wife, but he wasn't concerned about how his contentious relationship affected his son. I mean, he was someone that really threw his weight around, especially because he was like, you know, the breadwinner, right? He was the one that had all the money and she was a, mostly a stay-at-home mother. So he could really sort of hold that over her head. She had been scared enough by his abusive, domineering behavior that she actually got a restraining order against him. For Ed, it was very much a, a machismo kind of thing where he did not want to give up anything. So if you're getting divorced, half of it's going to your former significant other. He had told people, you know, she's not gonna get anything from me. In this case, we knew about the divorce, Medi Jr. Basically, Edward Lacasio said that he was home 
in his uh, condo. That all checked out. As far as DNA found on the scene with, with Ed, he of course lived in a house. Uh, so there, there might have been uh, DNA. Eddie Jr., he lived in a house also. So it would have been not unusual to find their DNA there. At that point, we did discuss different angles. We discussed uh, other leads that should be done. It was a slow process, but we wanted to get it right also. Doing an autopsy is a medical procedure, but it's also part of the investigative procedure. And with all the trauma that she had, I wanted to look for patterns because patterns will help you rule in or rule out a, a weapon. For example, what could the police be looking for on the outside if they ever find something? It was unusual because it took me two full days. A day or two later, a neighbor called and said there was a bag in my backyard and I thought I should notify the police. We recovered the bag. There was identification um, of the victim in a bag of Maggie Lacasio, one of the, the murder weapons. And of course, there, there was bloody, bloody clothing in there. When we canvassed the area and talked to witnesses, witnesses there, um, approximately two blocks away, there was a family. And it was right around Halloween time. And during that time, uh, they ended up seeing a, um, a vehicle drive down the street, drive very slow. At that time, they saw a um, Coral Gables police officer at that intersection around the area where this, uh, it was a pickup truck where it stopped. One of the officers left the station. He was coming down a side street, just north of our location. And he came to a four-way stop. And coming towards him was a pickup truck. And the truck was approaching him uh, very slowly. And he found it to be very odd. The truck made a U-turn, including going into a yard. And when he made a U-turn, the police officer was responding to an alarm in progress because the house uh, alarm was set off in a house. He left the pickup truck and came to my location. He told me, hey, I just saw this pickup truck three blocks north of here. And I immediately blew him off. I go, I, I don't care. I have this lady here who's just been murdered. I, I didn't think they had anything to do with each other. We also spoke to another neighbor who was out walking his dog. He saw a figure of a man a, a dark in the dark. Uh, walking to the west, uh, away from the house. So by going around the block, he would have been able to get back to where his pickup truck was. During that time, Ed is uh, going about his normal life. He's uh, running his CPA business. At some point, information was given to us by a, an employee of, of Ed Lacasio Sr. that his brother had been in town from North Carolina. Michael Lacasio was sort of like the black sheep of the Lacasio family. He was someone that was not a well-to-do accountant. He was not someone that lived in um, the fancy, you know, suburbs of Coral Gables, but was someone that had struggled with a drug problem. He was someone that was sort of like, you know, the, the embarrassment of the family. Michael had been arrested in the past for petty type crimes and frauds and thefts. And he rarely got in touch with, uh, with Edward uh, Sr. Prior to that, he would come into town maybe once a year, uh, maybe for a birthday or a special event. And all of a sudden, he came in uh, three weekends in a row, and she was killed on a fourth weekend. That um, right away caused suspicion on our part. 
that's when they started to learn about this this brother Michael and that he drove a white pickup truck and that white pickup truck of course was um, seen at the at the scene of the crime and so there was this you know obvious nexus we actually saw him on a video camera and in that video you can see a, a dark spots throughout his back and on his uh, lower side. Michael, after the homicide, goes to Eddie's house. Why would he do that? In the killing of Maggie Locasio, investigators learn of a surprising suspect, the victim's brother-in-law, Michael Locasio. They are even more interested to learn that this brother not only has a rap sheet, but owns a white pickup truck like the one seen on the night of the murder. We got on the trail of the pickup truck uh, pretty, pretty quickly. We ended up going to North Carolina to talk to Michael Lacoste, the brother, and we uh, staked out his house, uh, trying to wait for him to come home. What we found in the truck which was interesting because all the seats were taken out, all the carpeting in the truck, was taken out, and there were there were puddles of water inside the truck, um, which indicated the truck was washed out. So what was important was the DNA from the, the green bag that was found coming back to Michael Lacasio also, and of course the victim's blood. Her DNA was found on the clothing as well as, uh, as Michael Lacasio. After the DNA came back, we got an arrest warrant for him. The evidence was there, and we knew he did it. Michael really was a pitiful figure in this whole terrible story. He was the one who inflicted the fatal blows. He was the one that kicked and stomped and choked and stabbed Maggie. Michael Lacasio drove to Coral Gables um, on the night of the homicide, and he um, parked his truck about a block away from where Maggie's house was. Through the investigation, we determined that she pulled into her garage Michael slipped in beside her car before the door closed. She went inside of the house. It looked like she was starting to cook something when Michael confronted her in, in the house. After committing the homicide, he left the house. By leaving the house, he set off the alarm uh, that was set by Maggie with a delay, which means he slipped into the house before, before the alarm was actually armed. When the detectives managed to pin the murder on Michael, I mean, you had all the evidence, right? The case against him really was solid, but we couldn't figure out what was the motive. Why would he want to kill his, his former, you know, sister-in-law? If we had the trial against Michael Lacasio, and Michael was found guilty of, of all charges. He did not get the death penalty, but he got life in prison. Michael was actually a killer, but we also suspected that he did not have a motive to kill Maggie. The motive would have had been supplied to him by his brother, Edward Lacasio. In Florida, it's a 50-50 state. So if you're getting divorced, half of it's going to your former significant other. So Ed was filled with a lot of anger because she was going to get a lot of his stuff. Ed had acquired millions of dollars during the marriage, which he amassed in his name, and he felt he was suddenly giving up his kingdom. 
He was losing the prestige. He was losing the finances. And he didn't think that he should have to share it. Michael was sort of the pitiful Fredo figure in this whole thing. He was also sort of the puppet to his brother. Michael Lucasio uh, came there to do his brother a favor, and I'm sure he was going to benefit out of that. Of course, when we proved it was Michael, Edward Lucasio said that he was a, you know, a problem, he was a loser, that sort of uh, person. So it doesn't surprise him he did it, but he didn't take any responsibility for it. So there's a bittersweet sense behind his conviction for Eddie Jr. because he knows that Michael was really manipulated by his father. But proving it in the court of law and securing a conviction, much different thing. When we dealt with Edward Lucasio, he was very arrogant. He was very uh, pushy. You know, he was, uh, you know, he, he acted like he was the smartest person in our room, and he was smarter than everybody else and, uh, that was involved in his case. The danger of someone thinking they're the smartest person in the room is that they frequently underestimate the people around them. And his secretary ended up outing him that she had overheard him talking with his brother a great deal. She ended up calling uh, another detective that worked with us on a case, and she told him about there's been a couple meetings where uh, his secretary saw them actually meeting with each other in parking lots and, and talking. They went back and they see, well, for, for many, many months, these two never talked, right? They just, they were just, you know, sort of had this distant relationship. And then suddenly there's a gazillion phone calls. So we don't know what was said on those phone calls, but it's a pretty reasonable assumption that, hey, they're planning the murder. Now, with tracing the phones, we were able to put Michael Lacasio in the vicinity of the victim's home with the cell sites. Then it was also in the area where, where, uh, where Edward Lacasio lived. We actually saw him on, on, on a video camera at the main gate buzzing the, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, buzzer to get in, to get left into the property. And in that video, you can see a, a dark spots throughout his back and on his uh, lower side. Michael, after the homicide, goes to Eddie's house in South Beach. Why would he do that? Well, it's because he's going there to, to you know, um, talk about the conspiracy and say, hey, I did it, let me tell you what happened. When we had enough evidence to charge him, we picked up Ed in his office. He denied being involved in any way. And he was saying things like, who put you up to this? At some point, Ed said, they got nothing, they got nothing. They got nothing on me. You know, and that, that was pretty, pretty important because uh, in addition to everything else, it was almost, almost like an admission. I'd never been exposed to any cases like that. This was a gentleman who was very controlling and didn't want to let go of his money. He was talking on the phone with his brother, and he said to me, if I ever wanted to have the killed, he could have it done and no one would ever find out. Accountant Ed Lacasio stands accused of conspiring with his younger brother to kill his wife. Now with Michael in prison for life, it's Ed's turn to have his day in court. We are ready to begin. Now the case of State of Florida versus Edward Lacasio. If I want the dead, my brother says he'd do it, and no one would find out. 
Those are the words of this defendant. In 2001, Maggie realized she could no longer live in the emotional prison that this defendant had created for her. His lies, his abuse, his constant control, and his open infidelity had taken its toll. But this time was different. She was ready for a fight. That did not make this defendant very happy. She should not get anything that he had worked for. All that he had accomplished, all that he had created, she would get nothing. And now, well, it's heads I win, tails you lose, little brother. You see, this defendant had set everyone up, Maggie to die and his brother to take the fall. Ed and Maggie Locasio just wanted to get divorced. Nothing more, nothing less. Little did they know that brother Mike had other ideas. And in his twisted, scheming, criminal mind, he had a misguided idea of what's best for his brother who's going through this divorce. It's easy to, to make the contrast between upstanding citizen someone that's never been in trouble with the law before, um, and contrast that with the drug-addicted brother who's been arrested before and has all these other issues. They could just say, hey, you know, Michael was just doing it to gain favor with his brother, or he thought somehow it would benefit him, but Ed had no idea that his brother, his black sheep brother, shift all the blame to Michael and just say it was all his fault. There is no direct evidence that Ed Locasio conspired with his brother, helped his brother, assisted his brother, or knew about this. The evidence and the circumstances do not and cannot prove Ed Locasio guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, because in truth and in fact, he is not guilty. The husband, Ed, was not his DNA that they found. They could rule him out in terms of being at the crime scene. That doesn't mean that there wasn't any collusion. We didn't find any exchange of money or currency. We knew that was going to be a tough trial because it was all circumstantial evidence. Showing counsel 3K. What do we see? Uh, you see a picture of the door that I went through and Ms. Lopasio on the floor. I actually did go into the residence to check on Ms. Lopasio to see if she was still alive. And was she? No. I'd never been exposed to any cases like that. Uh, this was a gentleman who was very controlling and didn't want to let go of his money and didn't want his wife get the better of him as he saw it. Did you work for a man named Ed Locasio? Yes. Do you recall one specific time that you had a conversation with this defendant about his brother? Yes. Could you tell the members of the jury what happened during that conversation? He was talking on the phone with his brother, Michael. He hung up the phone and he said to me, man, my brother's crazy. And I said, why? He goes, because he, he told me that if I ever wanted to have the bill the killed, he could have it done and no one would ever find out. He had a, um, a secretary. Uh, her name was uh, Gudele Gonzalez. She actually, um, was aware of what was going on between Edward and Michael. The many calls that they made with each other and also the hatred that, uh, that Edward had toward his wife. Mr. Locasio find out that 
I was the one who told the detective. What did this defendant do? He went like this to the table. Like what? Like this, like because of you, my brother is going to be in prison and he could die. Did he attempt to grab you by your throat? Almost. And when he almost grabbed you by your throat, what did you do? I went and I called Detective Stopinian. If this was a case that had DNA, that had surveillance footage, that had secretly recorded phone calls or wiretaps of Eddie planning the murder, but we had none of that. So a lot of this was just by really strong inference. So the defense wanted to hit the credibility of the witnesses, including the secretary. The secretary was a pretty important piece of the puzzle for the state. So if you can suddenly impeach her and damage her credibility, that's a pretty important thing. Your relationship with him with him in the beginning when you started working was good, right? Was very good, right. yes. And what happened really is once you started living with the lead detective in this murder case, he turned you no, against him. That's not what happened. Oh, isn't this why your testimony changes over time? No. It's because of your relationship with him has nothing to do with my relationship. You wanted to make him look good and make his case for him. No. There was credibility issues because of this sort of bizarre subplot. The secretary, turned out, was having an affair with one of the detectives on the case. If the case is ongoing and an investigation is on, do you feel there's anything wrong with you as lead detective dating and living with an important witness? Yes, uh, it was not the best uh, um, decision that I made in my career. I regret it most of all for putting Ms. Gudelai through the grief she's gone through. After all, she came forward with all the information. She put her job on the line. Uh, she put her friendship with the defendant on the line. Uh, also, uh, there was nothing that I did other than that bad decision to date her. Nothing that I did in my investigation before or after that changed any of the facts which I documented in my report. The relationship between the secretary and Detective Estopan absolutely jeopardized the case. Jurors are sharp. They can understand what it means when it comes to the detectives and, and witnesses and credibility. That's very strong, powerful stuff for the defense. You eventually broke up, correct? That's correct. For things nothing to do with this case, correct? That's correct. And if you didn't break up and you continue to live with her and no one complained, to this day, you would still be living with her, right? That's correct. And you'd be testifying in a first-degree murder trial, and your star witness in the case, you're living with. You see nothing wrong with that. I explained that, uh, that, it, that it is wrong. So if it's wrong, why didn't you stop it? I can't think of testimony that would be more compelling than to see a son testifying against his own father. He told her, I will kill you, I will end you, and I will destroy you. In the case of Florida versus Edward Lacasio, an intimate relationship between the state's star witness and one of the lead detectives in the investigation has put the entire case at risk. But the prosecution is determined. According to the testimony of people close to Ed, he was truly capable of having his wife, Maggie, killed. Through the investigation, we determined that, that Edward was actually dating a young lady. Um, and they had a falling out, they had a big fight. 
yo le dije, oh, yo vi a tu esposa el, la noche que... Yo vi a tu hermano la noche que mataron a tu esposa. Oh, he, I told him, oh, I saw your wife. Well, I told him, I saw your brother the day they caught, they, like, the night that they killed your wife. And did you say anything about giving the information to the police? ¿Y le dijo usted alguna cosa de dar información a la policía? O si la policía me preguntaba a mí, yo iba a decir que yo vi a su hermano. No, if the police would ask me, I was going to say that I saw his brother. Did you tell this defendant that? ¿Usted le dijo a este acusado eso? Sí. Yes. What did he say? ¿Qué le dijo él? Que si yo llamaba a la policía, me podía pasar algo peor de lo que le pasó a su esposa. That if I called the police, something worse than what happened to his wife would happen to me. That in itself wasn't, wasn't enough evidence, but combined with everything else we had, um, all, all mounted for circumstantial evidence to prove a case against him that he was the one behind Maggie being killed and why she was killed. This time his name was Edward John Macasia. I can't think of testimony that would be more compelling and dramatic than to see a son testifying against his own blood father um, and basically saying, yes, this is the man that I believe murdered my mother. Now, during the time uh, prior to your mother's murder, did you uh, see your parents interact? Yes. And uh, did you witness any yelling? Oh, yes. Did you witness any physical uh, unwanted touching? Yes. Tell the members of the jury what you saw. He would grope her, um, her breasts and, and her vagina. He said to, to make her feel like meat. Uh, he would push her in with, with his chest as, to try to move her body around because she was a rather frail person. I'll never forget just how, how candid and earnest he was. I'll never forget, he knew right away when his mother died, his father was behind it. Even though it took a while to get there, he knew it. He told her, I will kill you, I will end you, and I will destroy you. And after that, he proceeded to, as he would usually do, bump into her with his chest and told her, I, I could kill you with one blow. This wasn't someone that he viewed as a father figure anymore. This was someone he really viewed as, as sort of a, a, a villain in his life. I don't think Ed was above blaming anybody in his life as long as he wasn't held accountable. And the reality is that sometimes people get to be held accountable. Did Mr. Lacasio have an accounting practice? He did. And um, did he uh, also have investments? Yes. Did he have property? Yes. Did he have rental property? Yes. Did he have um, other things that generated income to him? That's an unknown question. Maggie was an accountant, and she um, had a master's degree in accounting, and so she knew exactly everything about the assets. She looked at the books, she had studied it, and she knew that, that Ed was playing games with the finances. These properties, when I say owned, did you come to know whether they were owned by Edward S. Locasio or some other entity? Um, I believe most of them 
were owned by some other entity, like a corporation that he would have formed for the purpose of owning the property. Maggie was getting ready for the deposition. And Ed, who was a smart accountant, understood he was about to be subjected to a financial colonoscopy. The truth would be exposed. The financial facts, which had been covered through corporate structures, would enable her to get what she felt she deserved. Do you remember what the date of Mrs. Lacasio's deposition was scheduled for? I believe it was set for October 31. On October 31st, did Mrs. Lacasio's deposition take place? No. Well, why not, Mr. Wynn? Because Ms. Lacasio was murdered on the 30th. It took several years to eventually charge Edward Lacasio. The last thing we wanted was to have him found not guilty if he was guilty. Saying it is easy. Proving it is a whole nother thing. The prosecution has tried to prove the motive in the case against Ed Lacasio. Not only would he have had to split his multi-million dollar estate with his wife, but also, Maggie was only one day away from exposing her husband's financial deceit. Soon, a jury will decide if it's enough to convict a man of murder without any physical evidence. This case is very simple, actually. This case is about a person who was getting divorced that didn't want to share it because he thought it was all his. And if he was going to be forced to share, she wasn't going to share alike. That, ladies and gentlemen, is motive. Michael Ocasio has no motive. There are no reasonable explanations of innocence. None. He is a principal to all of the crimes. Let your verdict speak the truth. He's guilty. Two brothers with a plan. The plan he had. The plan he wanted. So it could be all his. He's guilty of murder in the first degree, of armed robbery, of burglary with an assault and armed, and criminal conspiracy. Because without him, there would have been no crime. Thank you. The prosecution was stitching together all of these reasons as to why, right? Obviously, we don't have Ed at the scene, but they managed to stitch together all of these pieces and weave it into a really strong circumstantial case. The idea that Ed Locasio conspired Michael Ocasio to do this, I say to you, ultimately, is just simply completely unreasonable. To announce that my brother's so crazy he can kill the to get messages from him, to bring him to Miami, to introduce him around, to tell him to come back to the apartment so his picture can be taken. Does any of this make any sense? When Mitz Levine gets up here and is so positive and tells you this is how it happened, Saying it is easy. Proving it is a whole nother thing. None of those people are in trial here. This man is on trial. This man is on trial. And he's presumed innocent. 
and their stories have to be so convincing that you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of its truth. You are convinced that they have proven their case. I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, that the true and correct verdict in this case, given all the evidence, cutting out all the guesswork, cutting out all the screaming and yelling, cutting out all the pointing, cutting the mistakes out, cutting all the innuendo out, cut all, all the smearing of someone's reputation, cutting all that out, get down to it. It's not that difficult anymore. It's not that difficult. The state has not proven its case, ladies and gentlemen. And all I'm asking you to do what's right and to do what's supported by the law. And it's to find Edward Locasio as to each of those four counts, not guilty. You have the power. I'm asking you to exercise it. And I submit to you that that's the right thing to It took several years to eventually charge Edward Locasio with, with the crime itself. And the reason for that was uh, uh, the evidence, to build up the evidence. The last thing we wanted was to have him found not guilty if he was guilty. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I understand you have reached a verdict. Is that correct? We, the jury, find the defendant, Edward Stanton Lacasio, as to count one, first-degree murder, guilty of first-degree murder as charged. Count two, burglary with an assault or battery while armed. Guilty of burglary with an assault while the defendant was armed and in a dwelling. Count three, robbery, armed, deadly weapon guilty of robbery with a deadly weapon. And count four, conspiracy to commit first degree murder, guilty of conspiracy as charged, so say we all. At the end of the day, it was the only thing that made sense. Okay, so you had the little sideshow with the secretary and the detective, but at the end of the day, you had so many pieces of evidence that built up this circumstantial case. Ed was the only one that had the motive to see his estranged wife murdered. All these things really did weave together a strong case. There was no other option. As to count one, murder in the first degree, accepting the recommendation of the jury, I sentence you to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. To the families, to the Silvera family, nothing will ever bring back your mom or your sister or your daughter. But I hope you have some comfort in feeling that our system of justice We knew that justice was served. We knew it took a while. We knew it was a long time coming. I think that it's, uh, it's stuck in my memory. Uh, one, because I spent 25 hours on the scene and, and I saw the, uh, the carnage that was done. How a situation like a divorce could lead to something so brutal. He had a charmed life, and, and he flushed it down the toilet for, for, for spite because he didn't want her to have a scent. And he made that clear. He wasn't going to give her a scent. I think Ed was the type of person that thought that he, he who has the gold rules but he didn't live by the golden rule. And instead, it was his downfall, greed.
Michael Lacasio is currently serving out his life sentence. Eddie Jr. ended up completing medical school and became a doctor. I'm Tamron Hall. Thanks for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you want to see more of our shows, they are available to stream for free on our website. Just check the show notes for a link. And you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, where we dive deeper into the biggest current true crime stories every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.